Hello, everybody, and welcome to Truth Be Told. Thank you very much for listening in. I hope you're doing well. We have been going through my trip to Israel, going through day by day and site by site. And uh, if you haven't listened up to this point, I do recommend going back and listening from the beginning. There's a lot of value in all the episodes, I think, especially if you're interested in the nation of Israel, the archaeological sites themselves, on the surface level, what a trip to Israel is even like. Um, And I think I'm trying to add like a spatial awareness to the landscape because that's really what I took away so much from my trip was just distances between places, landscape, and and all this stuff... um, seems so superficial, but really adds a lot when you're reading through scripture. So if uh, that's the thing you're here for and listening for, then I recommend going back to the beginning. But for those of you that have been here with us uh, up to this point, we have a bit of a shorter episode today because on this seventh day in Israel, it was the Sabbath. And so we were resting and not doing as much strenuous walking, hiking, traveling, touring, whatever you want to call it. Um, And I personally was ready for it. Um, I I definitely didn't want to take a day just completely off and do nothing and see nothing. But as it turns out in Israel, you don't have to go far and do too much to see significant things. Like the whole land is just, just absolutely filled with historically and biblically significant sites. And so we could effectively keep the Sabbath day and rest from what we'd been doing up to that point while still seeing things that were awesome. So it was a shorter day. We didn't see as much, but what we did see was fantastic, and I'm excited to share it with you. The first thing we did this day, though, uh, we got to sleep in just a little bit, which was nice. Like I said, I was tired, um, not ready to just see nothing and do nothing all day, but I, I was excited to get a little bit more sleep. Um, but the first thing we did after we woke up was look for food. And this isn't, I mean, that seems like such a normal thing to say, like, like, why are you telling us about that? And I told you about some meals in the past, just because they are interesting, the way they're served, the kind of food you have, it's all part of it. But as far as going for food on the Sabbath, this was a little bit trickier and definitely something that's interesting and uh, pertains to the culture of Israel. Um, So each site, at least each food site, um, or business in Israel has what our tour guides called a kosher czar. And this person is responsible for maintaining and keeping the kosher laws of the land of Israel, particularly pertaining to like the Orthodox or traditional Jewish people. And um, these, these laws are set out and then people uh, apply for kosher licenses so they can be registered as a kosher business. And that way, uh, the Jewish people that keep these kosher laws don't have to worry when they go into a restaurant or a store if you know they're not going to have to sort, sort through and be like, oh, they might put pork in this or, oh, this might have touched this other thing that it shouldn't. They are, uh, they just look and see, okay, this place has a kosher license and great, I can go there and shop you know, with kind of reckless abandon. So uh, as far as going on the Sabbath, when you're going to find places to eat, most places in order to maintain their kosher license shut down for the Sabbath to maintain this this licensure that they've they've applied for and worked for and have this kosher czar overseeing um, their keeping of these these regulations. So we had to go to a place that wasn't licensed by the the state of Israel as kosher. And there's not a lot of places like this because even though the places that register for kosher license have to give up the Sabbath day, they get a lot more business in the day-to-day 
by the citizens of Israel, who are primarily Jewish to one degree or another, at least in in the religion. So um, to take a hit and say, well, we're not going to be kosher. Yes, you get a lot more. Um, maybe you get like more like tourism business, people that aren't Jewish that are looking for a place on Saturday. But on Saturday, you also get no uh, Jewish patrons. And then during the week, Jewish patrons also might avoid you. And even some Muslim uh, patrons might avoid you because they're, they have a certain kosher law as well for themselves. Um, it's called halal, but you know what I mean? Uh, but during the week they might avoid you because they don't want to have to worry about, you know, keeping the law for themselves, I guess they want you to be the one that's careful for them. So this was pretty interesting. Um, I have, you know, I keep the food laws from the old Testament as far as like not eating clean and unclean meats. And so, living in America, there's, there's no such thing as like a kosher czar. There's no kosher laws that the nation abides by. And so I'm always on the lookout for things. You know, I'm always going to a restaurant thinking, oh, do they put bacon on this and just not list it? Or, oh, this tastes a little bit funny. I wonder if they did something to it that I am not allowed to eat. And so that's just kind of my life. But in Israel, because so much of the population does to, like I said, to one degree or another, keep these kosher laws, um, it just makes more sense for businesses to apply for this license and for it to be like a national policy. And so we had to find places that were opened and didn't have these kosher laws or didn't rather have this kosher license. And there really just aren't that many. And so we had to split up the buses. And so one bus went one place, another bus, I think we went like half and half because even the places you go to, they're short staffed a little bit cause they aren't expecting busloads of people to come through for lunch. Um, they just don't get as much business on Saturdays. And so we had to split up and my group, we, we could go on any bus. So it was like, they kind of told us some of the options beforehand so we could make a decision on where we wanted to go. And the bus that I got on went to like a shopping mall kind of area. And, uh, for the world travelers that might be listening, you might be a little disappointed because, you know, you're in Israel, you want to try the local cuisine, you want to try stuff that you can't try back home. But we got to this mall area, this like, it's kind of like a strip mall, but a little bit nicer. And we got burgers. And I was pretty thrilled about it, to be honest with you. Um, I really like Mediterranean food. I really like Israeli food. Uh, it's all good. But there was something about resting from like extensive touring and resting from just packing your mind full of information that paired very well with resting from Mediterranean food and just getting a burger. I also got a drink there, which was nice. Um, I had like cinnamon and rosemary in it, which I would never expect to be like my thing, but it was awesome. So we got lunch and then we hopped back on the buses. I actually, there was a gelato place and we don't really have that very... I don't know. It doesn't happen very much in America that you come across a gelato place. So anytime I see it, I'm going to try and get some. And I'd seen it a couple times up to this point, but hadn't gotten any. And so when I saw one at this shopping mall center, I was like, yeah, that's going to happen. So I actually left lunch early just to get that before we had to hop back on the bus. And it was really good. I got like, um, I guess it was slightly cultural. It was like, um, sesame, not sesame pistachio. It was like sesame and pistachio. I think I got two scoops and the sesame one was like, Oh yeah, this is like very common Israeli gelato. I was like, okay, sweet. And it was great. I really liked it a lot. 
Uh, but then we hopped back on the bus and we went to the one site we went to for the day and that was Magdala. And the name sounds familiar, I'm sure. Uh, Magdala is thought to be the home of Mary Magdalene, who was a follower, a devout follower of Jesus Christ, um, primary woman in the Bible, someone that we really, she's an interesting figure. You know, um, biblically speaking, not a lot is said about her um, specifically. We know, like, she definitely followed Christ, and we know that she was devout and that she did care about him and, um, but really, other than that, a lot of conclusions are drawn that end up being really extra biblical. Or even if they're biblical, uh, as far as like the information, the connection between the information and Mary Magdalene, I would say, is an extra biblical thing. So, for example, um, I was reading a few articles about this and it listed like one of the most confusing parts about Mary Magdalene is that in the New Testament, you've got a lot of Marys. It's a very common name at this time period in the first century. So um, you've got Mary, the mother of Jesus, Mary and Martha, Mary Magdalene, and there's a couple of others that are lesser known and um, less often mentioned. But so th that's already hard because if it just says Mary in a certain passage, you have to really look at context to know if it's talking about Mary, the mother of Christ, Mary and Martha, or Mary Magdalene, or one of the others. So that's a tricky part uh, to start with. But then on top of that, you've got um, a lot of extra biblical texts from after the first century that talk about Mary Magdalene. And we're just not sure about the, the historical accuracy of these texts. So some of them say things like um, about Mary's past, Mary Magdalene's past, how she may have been a prostitute herself, or maybe like the leader of a prostitute like establishment. And I don't know, like maybe that's the case, but what the thing is, it's not from the Bible. So I can't say it with as much accuracy as I can say something from scripture, but um could it be historically accurate? Yes, there are things outside of the Bible that are historically accurate. The problem is we end up taking some of these stories and we either consciously elevate them to being part of her story or we unconsciously do it. So we hear it, we see it so often, and we don't look into it ourselves. And so over time, it's just like that becomes kind of uh, certain connotations kind of form around the character of Mary Magdalene. And this happens with other biblical characters as well. Um, a big example is like Thomas, right? So we have this one account of Thomas that he like demanded proof of the resurrection, but then nobody actually looks into the rest of the accounts we have of Thomas. And so they draw these conclusions and they just kind of stick with them. And then this guy gets painted with a broad brush rather than, you know, him being a complex human figure that has other places about him mentioned in scripture and outside of scripture. So uh, this is something that we need to be careful of as far as things that happen that are biblical that get attributed to Mary. The biggest one is when Jesus is eating with a Pharisee and a woman comes and anoints him uh, and anoints his feet. And this Pharisee is like, oh man, if this guy were who he says he is, he would know that this woman's a sinner. And then Jesus is like, no, no, no. She does this out of love for me. Like you're, you're missing the point. And then he tells her that she's forgiven. And it's a beautiful story. It comes right before we're introduced to Mary Magdalene, as well as a few other people. 
And so I'm not exactly sure why that one is specifically tied to Mary, um, but often it is. And we just don't have any, like the, the article I was reading about this said, well, if you're going to tie this to Mary, you could just as easily tie this to Joanna um, or any of the other women figures that are listed as following Christ in the very next chapter. And so uh, because this woman isn't mentioned, we can't say for a fact that it was Mary Magdalene. This is just something that people have kind of connected for themselves. Another one is uh, the woman caught in adultery. I've heard that that could have been Mary Magdalene and that, you know, uh, that's a section of the Bible that actually people think were, was added later. Um, some earlier manuscripts don't have that in there at all. Again, doesn't make it wrong to be in the Bible. Doesn't make it historically inaccurate. Um, but some people say, well, it came later and we know that Mary and the apostles did most of their work later. And so this must mean that, um, somehow I'm not even sure how that, like that connection, even in my mind doesn't make sense. But they, they know that Mary had some sort of troubled past, and they see this woman with a troubled past, and they assume, okay, well, this, this must be Mary Magdalene. So that's another one. And then lastly is uh, the anointing before Christ's death. So he is um, he's anointed again with expensive oil, and the disciples are like, man, she should have used that to sell and give to the poor. And Jesus is like, no, she's anointing me for my death. And... Um, people connect this because later Mary Magdalene is seen very much involved with Mary, the mother of Christ in preparing Jesus's body and then um, checking in at the tomb uh, a couple times leading up to his resurrection. And so they, they tie, because Mary Magdalene is tied to the death of Christ in scripture, they'll take this other unnamed woman and say, well, this is Mary Magdalene. It's the, they're trying to make the point that it was Mary Magdalene because they're tying this woman to the death of Christ. Not that she's responsible for it, but you know what I mean? Um, again, we just don't have a name for that woman. Now, what we do know about Mary Magdalene, like I said, she was a devoted follower of Christ. She um, was very much involved after his death leading up to his resurrection. And we have... Um, one very telling verse that says that um, when we're first introduced to her, it says that she had seven demons come out of her. Now, that is, I mean, that's significant, right? And people argue over that too. They say, well, metaphorically, this would have been just a statement, meaning she had some morality issues. And seven is like this number of completeness. Demons would just be like unclean spirits and could be doesn't have to be like supernatural entities or beings, but could just be um, like vices that she had. And so she was like completely filled with vice and then she got rid of those things. I, I'm not well versed in any of that, but it seems like at least on face value that she had seven demons, beings, entities in her and they were removed. So we're actually not even told that Christ did the removing of them, but I think that's an assumption that I'm, I'm comfortable making. Um, because it says this in relation to her and these other women following Jesus. So I think, uh, like I said, it's not, there's not like a line drawn from this to that, but it's something that we can be a little more confident in than some of the other correlations that are made. And so this is where we went to the home of Mary Magdalene at Magdala. And so this wouldn't have even probably been her name. It does say Mary called Magdalene. Um, so maybe she was called by her, you know, kind of like calling someone like a country boy or something or um, like the Goonies. Oh, that's a really good example, actually. Like the Goonies, 
Uh, I don't know if you've seen that movie. It's fantastic. But they're named, like their little crew is named for the place that they're at, um, which is in the the boonies of this town that they live in. So possibly that's why she had that name or possibly it's just that Mary, uh, the translation is more Mary from Magdalene, but either, or Magdala, but either way, um, and other people say this actually about Judas Iscariot, like Iscariot wasn't a last name, but it was probably more like where he was from, like a, a geographical indicator. And so this did happen. Uh, we do have this a lot in scripture, especially when we have repeated names. Um, like they were, they're very big on like saying, uh, Simon bar Jonah, right? Simon, son of Jonah. So if you have multiple Simons, it's like, well, how do we indicate that this is this Simon? And it's, so it's Simon bar Jonah. And then sometimes they even change their name so that we can have, you know, just a little bit more clarity on who's being talked about or Simon, the zealot. It's like, okay, well now we know that that's the one being talked about or Simon, the leper. Now we know that that's the one being talked about. Um, or the Tanner, man, there's a lot of Simons and then a lot of Marys. So so it's not strict. It's not like a strict rule, but it is common that people would go by different monikers if they are, they have a name that's similar to everyone else, especially in written literature. And, um, just like an interesting thing, I don't know if it's relevant or not, but, um, Magdala, the name comes from the Hebrew word Migdal, which means tower. And so they think at one point, probably in this town, there was a tower. Some people say it was more metaphorical, like, um, uh, like my high tower, you know, that, that can be said about God or, you know, it could be about something standing strong or maybe a high heightened elevation slightly over something else, or it doesn't matter. Perhaps there was just a tower here, but it does come from the name Migdal and they have not archeologically found a tower here though some believe they found where the tower might have been. And I actually do think that this is probably um, the best explanation for why it's called Magdala, because um, around Galilee, this is, a, this is a town right on the Sea of Galilee. So that's something I didn't know before going in. I knew it's in the region of Israel. I know that Jesus had been there. And I know that Mary Magdalene had been probably from that town. But I didn't realize how close it was to everything else around this lake. And so there's all these towns built around the sea and you can see, um, you can see everything. I mean, from one side of the lake, even the longest side to the other side is, uh, I think it's like 12 miles or something. And you can see across the whole thing. And so it would make sense that a town, um, even if it wasn't properly named, that would become known for the thing that was visible about it. And so I could see that, um, if this town had a town there, like or, or a tower there, like a watchtower or something, you could see it from everywhere. And so not only would they potentially call themselves after this very prominent feature, but other places would have no problem saying like, oh yeah, the other town over there, you know, the tower town, the one with the tower. Um, so I could see easily how this would be, especially if they have some indication that this is where they, they have sites where they believe a tower would have stood. I think it makes sense that this is probably the, the origin of the name. And when you go there, um, we had actually been here a day or two before properly visiting the site. And um, when we went, I didn't know what it was. And we had just gone there because there's a hotel on the property. And we went to this hotel to have lunch in between other touring. And there's it's really interesting how this hotel is laid out. Like in the lobby, there's 
glass cases with artifacts and to get into the hotel itself, you kind of pass through some, some ruins and, or you see them off to the side. And I thought, man, this is like very well integrated into this archeological site. And because our guides didn't really talk about it much and because uh, we didn't stop and see anything, we were literally just there for lunch. And so I was kind of task oriented, task minded. And so I thought, all right, well, if this is important, we'll come back to it or they'll say something about it. And if it's not, then I'll find out later what it was, you know, and still, I'll, I'll still find it interesting, even if it's not biblically incredibly significant. So we had already been here, but now we were visiting it properly. So I was glad we came back. And this hotel is so, so cool. I mean, it's very nice. Like it's, it's really modern and up to date, but it's just surrounded by these ruins. And I talked in an earlier episode about building in Israel and how tricky it can be and how risky because anytime you build, you're required by law to excavate to a certain depth to make sure that you're not building over top of something historically significant. And so a lot of places will buy the land and then excavate and then find something. And then one of two things happens. They either have to completely give up the project altogether, whether that's because they don't want the hassle of um, trying to preserve the site on top of already, you know, building something uh, or they, just like, I don't know, potentially they just give up and they, they don't build there or they have to moderate their, their blueprints and their plans and then build kind of around it or with it. And this can take time and it can take money and resources. And so a lot of places are, are unearthed, something's found there, and then people have to leave and find new land. And it's kind of at their expense. So that's, uh, that's kind of a risk that you take when building in Israel. But the people that built this hotel had planned to build a hotel here already. They dug down. They found um, this Magdala city. And they were like, oh, man, this is like they took this as an opportunity. They're like, this is incredible what we found here. And actually, the people that owned the land were Catholic. And there's one guy. You can find videos of him on YouTube if you just type in Magdala or Magdala Stone, which we'll talk about in just a second. Um, but it's like this Catholic father and he, he bought this land and when he found out what it was, he was so excited. He said, this can't just be Catholic land anymore. This, this has to be for, um, Christians as well. And then when they kept on digging, they actually found an, a synagogue from the first century. And he said, oh, wow, not just for Catholics and not just for all Christians, but for the Jews and for the world. And so he really had this, this great foresight and a really good attitude even though it probably did cost him money to redesign his plans of the hotel, to not mess with the archaeology, and then to excavate as well. And so um, they've done a really nice job. Now, most of the ruins that you're going to see in Magdala look pretty similar to everywhere else you're going to see. And I mean, that's, to be honest, that's incredible. I think I, I didn't give it enough credit when I was there. Um, but to look to go to a site that is 3000 years old and then to go to a site that's 1000 years old and a site that's 2000 years old and to see that really they're preserved to a very similar degree in a lot of cases now some places are preserved better that's true but across the board to at least a lay person like me i'm going into these sites thinking they look pretty similar even though there might be a thousand years difference in between that to me is incredible um, but this site is is around 2,000 years old, and 
still looks pretty good. Like you can discern the streets and the houses and the buildings. And so I think that's awesome. But the crowning jewel of all of this place is uh, the synagogue in the town of Magdala. And the reason this is so cool, there's actually two reasons, or I'd say three reasons. One is it's incredibly well-preserved. There are mosaic floors that are just absolutely beautiful. And they surround the entirety of the inner room of the synagogue. And so this would have been a place like where you go to church and get coffee. This would have been like where people congregate or fellowship. And it actually went a long way in proving, because for a long time, it kind of alternated. So people believed the ancient synagogues first were only used for like church services. Then, you know, more study was done and it's realized, no, no, no. Synagogues were more like a town hall meeting place. They were, yes, you use them for religious worship, but that was kind of secondary. And so this, um, this discovery at Magdala and some of the other first century synagogues in the area, which there's really not many, um, but this this site specifically did a really good thing in kind of bringing back public opinion to show that, yes, this was used for town hall meetings. Yes, this was used as a community gathering space. But this was in so many ways used for worship that it still has to be known that worship was the primary use of a synagogue. So it's kind of like like my, my church uh, congregation has our own building that we meet in. And... Uh, the church owns it and we have loved that. I mean, it's, it's really, really nice. And we use it for things like all kinds of things. We'll have activities there. Um, we have, uh, like meetings there. If people need to meet to plan activities or, um, I know the elders meet there to discuss the goings on in the congregation. We also have church services there and we'll do like cleanup crews and, um, people will be there throughout the week working on, we have like a wooded area. I've been out there the past few weeks, um, like just cutting wood with some of the older guys. So that's been cool. And so th- it really does become like a very, a very community centric place. Um, I would argue it'd be more so if we all lived in the same general area, like right next to the property. Um, but as it stands, even though we live pretty far away, you know, we're all scattered around the central Ohio area. Um, it's still used as a community gathering place. And in first century Israel, where you've got people where their faith is really the cornerstone of their whole life, you know, in, in modern age, your faith is a part of who you are. And really, I think it's supposed to be who you are. It's supposed to dictate everything about you. And that was very much true in first century Israel because they're, they're kind of coming from roots of like a theocracy, right? They've got a king and that king is, you know, they've got kings and priests and those kings and priests are responsible for kind of the, the ritualistic practices of their faith. And so I think that that root was still firmly intact in first century Israel. And so synagogue here in Magdala has a lot of room for fellowship. It's not just a hall where people would meet at and sometimes it would happen to be religious. It really was a community place but religion was always intermixed in community gatherings because their community, uh, their fellowship, you know, centered around religion itself. So that's cool. Uh, it's, it's, it's well-preserved, like I said, beautiful mosaic floors, and it gives you a great idea of what a synagogue would have looked like. This rectangular room with um, pillars on the outside and then seats on the other side of the pillar. 
and then kind of this blank uh, open floor in a rectangular fashion. And at the, the coolest thing they found here was this um, relic that they call the Magdala Stone. And it is probably, I would say, two feet high. It's, it's just kind of like a box-looking thing or almost like a stool. And it's got very short legs, um, kind of three feet wide by two feet wide and about two feet tall. And it's got very short legs, just a, a tiny bit off the ground, maybe three inches or so off the ground. And this thing is right in the middle of the room at the head of the synagogue. And so it's kind of surrounded by these, these block seats and these pillars. And there's a lot of debate concerning what this was actually used for. But the cool, and I'll go through some of that in a second. But the cool thing about this artifact is that it is one of the earliest representations of temple worship in all of Israel. And so what I mean by this is we have um, literature indicating what the temple looked like, some of the things that were found in it. But in 70 AD, the temple was torn down and a lot of what happened to all the pieces inside of it is kind of a mystery. And so all we have to rely on, we don't have pictures or video, we have um, archaeology and literary elements. And most of what we have are from, from writings. And so this stone, though, has temple instruments on it. And it's kind of laid out in this square shape. And so it's got pillars on either side. It's got a menorah on it. And so this is very good affirmation that the image image we've painted of the temple that has been kind of given to us through literature is is very much accurate based on this stone. And this this would have been from ideally and and most likely this would have been carved by someone who had been to the temple and seen some of these things. So maybe a priest that had a rotation um, at the temple, that's possible. Um, and uh, so the, the theories though on what it was used for, some say it would have been a teaching tool, like because some people couldn't make it to the temple every year. And so it kind of connected them to Jerusalem in a way. I think that's, I mean, that stands to reason, even if uh, that wasn't its primary use, I, I do think it's definitely connected to, to Jerusalem, so why not also have that, you know, that's very possible it could have been in the minds of the people there. Um, also, some believe that it would have been a place, like it might have been lifted up onto uh, higher stilts and used as kind of a podium. This is, I, I think this is probably the least likely. Um, you will see people that say it, but in my mind, uh, it just, they didn't find that archaeologically, that they were like, you know, stilts somewhere or rocks somewhere that this would have been propped up on. So I'm not sure if I believe that one, but there is another theory that I do like quite a bit. And because of where it's found at the head of this, um, at the head of this synagogue, and it's just about like, if you were on your knees, it would be right at waist level. And so it's believed that potentially this would have been where a rabbi went to go and teach and they would not the seat of Moses specifically, um, but they would sit down behind this and roll the scroll out and then they would teach from there. And you think, well, sit down to teach doesn't make a lot of sense, but there's actually a lot of good biblical evidence for this. Um, in the first century, in this culture, sitting down was a sign that everybody else was supposed to be quiet because you were about to start something. And it says this, uh, there's times where Jesus 
uh, stands up to say something, but also there's times where it says he sat down to teach. And so very likely that I think it's very likely this might've been used for that. There's also another stone found in this area, um, that has like two grooves on the outside where they think they would have rolled a scroll out onto and the two ends would have sat neatly into it. Um, so that's another candidate for that. Um, but it does make sense. It's, it's just so, it feels like to sit on this thing, to use it as a seat would not, it, it just would feel wrong. I mean, you've got temple instruments carved into this. It's placed prominently at the head of the synagogue. This isn't just a chair, you know, and they had chairs already. So why do they need to make this one so strange? Um, but then also with, with the finding of the other stone that the scroll could have laid on, I'm not sure that it would have been where the scroll was laid, but it is just so like, you don't know what else you could use it for. Cause it's so low to the ground. And so this idea of a rabbi sitting down to teach or a visiting teacher coming in and sitting down to teach being a sign that everybody was to be quiet and the placement of it, this makes the most sense to me, but I, I, I can't say, you know, with absolute certainty. And so that's a, that's a really cool thing. I, I recommend you look it up. Um, there's been a lot of really good articles and videos on this Magdala stone. And it's a very significant find that, um, not only affirms the, the temple, but also, uh, certain practices from Judaism in the first century. And so I think it's, it's well worth looking into. Uh, and it also affirms a biblical account because we know the menorah was made, you know, in the, in the old Testament, we have the instructions for the building of the menorah. And so this is, it's significant for a lot of reasons. And something I found really, really cool about the synagogue, and I think everybody did that was there, is that it's very likely, like almost no doubt in my mind, that Jesus Christ would have been here and taught in this synagogue. And you might think, well, why? I mean, yeah, sure, maybe he was there. He met Mary Magdalene and she was from there. But why? I mean, maybe you don't even know he was there. How do you know that? And there's there's one verse, there's actually a couple of verses that say this, but there's one verse that... Um, I put some dirt in my Bible at this verse because that, that was kind of what I was doing at each site. Um, it's in Luke chapter four. Uh, in I'm going to start reading in verse 43. Jesus said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Now I'm reading from ESV. Uh, it has a note here that says many manuscripts say Galilee. And this is the region that he's in, is the Galilee region. And so uh, he's there. He has a lot of people following him in the Galilee region. And they're like, stay, stay, stay. And, and he's in Capernaum, which is a huge town. You know, there's a lot of people there as far as first century towns go. And so they want him to stay because, uh, you know, demons are being cast out. Healings are happening. It's a very miraculous time going on. And so they don't want to lose him, uh, to the wilderness or to other towns, or, you know, they, they like him staying right there and doing all these good things for them. But he says, listen, I'm not here to do all these miracles. I got to go preach to the other towns. And so he goes and preaches in all the area of Galilee and Magdala is like, I mean, it's right in Galilee. It's right around the sea of Galilee. It was like three miles from our hotel. I mean, I don't know that for a fact, but it was just a very, very short drive from our hotel on Tiberius. And like I said, you look around the lake, you can see everything. I want to mention that too. I keep saying lake. 
Um, the Sea of Galilee is very small. I have mentioned that. It was originally named the Sea of Galilee or Knesseret or uh, Kinnereth. Uh, you'll see it. You'll see it different names for it, but it's always referring to the Sea of Galilee. Um, but it was a big body of water. That's all that sea meant. And so it's really more the size of a lake. Um, but at the time with all, you know, there's kind of a lack of water in Israel. If they see a big body of water like that, it's a sea. And even at the temple, you had this big bronze basin, uh, that was filled with water that the Levites would wash in. This was also called the sea because it's a big body of water. Um, so it doesn't mean that it's a sea as far as like, you know, the world's on, on a world scale, it's definitely not a sea in the region. Yes. It's, it's called a sea. So that's why I keep switching back and forth. Cause when I'm trying to emphasize just how small it is and how you can see everything from everywhere, um, it's much more a lake in my mind, but when I'm just referring to it, sometimes I say sea. So that's why I switch back and forth. But anyways, back on topic. Um, yeah, it's very likely when it says, and he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea or of Galilee, that this synagogue would have been one that he went to. We have the tie with Mary Magdalene. Uh, we have other cities listed and other towns listed that are around Galilee, like Chorazin or Bethsaida. And we saw signs for those all around. And so, yeah, very likely that he would have taught here and potentially even seen this Magdala stone. So that was... That was pretty incredible uh, for me seeing that. All we did the rest of the time in Magdala was we went into, they do have a cathedral there. It's kind of, like I said, that that Catholic guy that owns the land, he wasn't kidding when he said this is not just for Catholics anymore and not just for all of Christianity, but for the Jewish people and for the world. Uh, He built this cathedral, but it's very... I would say it's very subdued. Like it's, it is big and it is impressive. It's clean and it is, it does have beauty to it, but it's not necessarily as, as gaudy as you would see on some other cathedrals. You know, there's not hanging incense dispensers and there's not uh, gold leaf everywhere. It's just, it's very tasteful and clean. And I think this was intentional. You know, when he says that other people are going to come here from different faiths and see this archeologically significant place, he meant it. And I think he built it or instructed it to be built, uh, after that fashion. And so we went into that, uh, church area and, you know, there's a, there's actually, there is a synagogue in there and there is a, a church for like Christian users as well. So, um, I'm not actually sure which one we went into, but we went in, there's beautiful windows on the back wall facing out to the sea of Galilee and then across to, uh, the Golan Heights and the Decapolis area. So we went in there and we had a Bible study and it wasn't about Magdala or Mary Magdalene. Like I said, there's not a lot of like biblical text surrounding that, but it was just kind of about um, the different groups found or listed or talked about in the New Testament. So like zealots, Pharisees, Sadducees, Decapolis people. Um, and so, you know, to look over and see the landscape and kind of have that be talked about was pretty cool. Uh, even though, you know, part of me is like, ah, oh, we're in this site. I want it to be this site specific, but there's really only so much that can be said as far as, uh, as far as scripture is concerned. And so after that, we, we drove back to the hotel and that was the day. Um, we did have dinner, which was nice. And, um, 
one interesting thing I wanted to point out on the roads, uh, we did start to see tabernacles popping up on people's back porches, patios, even their balconies. And, uh, you know, people often say to me like, well, you're not keeping Feast of Tabernacles how they did in ancient Israel because you're staying in a hotel um, and you're not building your own. I'm like, okay, that's, that's fair. Um, that's true. I'm looking at the spiritual principle of living in a temporary dwelling and being a sojourner in this world. And so I think I'm still fulfilling that. But then the Jewish people who some who understand what the Feast of Tabernacles is, they would look to them and say, oh, they're doing it right. They're following the old traditions. But if you look at the tabernacles they built, it's like PVC pipe and canvas tent. And a lot of them don't even sleep in it. They'll just eat meals in there. So they've definitely uh, changed how they do things a little bit as well. Um, either their tabernacles are a, lot, are a lot more comfortable or they are um, just built slightly differently than they would have in ancient Israel. So they're still keeping a spiritual principle um, I'm doing the same. I would say we've kind of reached different conclusions on what that looks like, but very few are actually keeping it like ancient Israelites. There are there are some. Uh, driving along the roads, you can see people with palm fronds sticking out of the backs of their cars, and they are going home to go build a tabernacle. So some do um, keep it very strictly like they would have in the Old Testament. So that's interesting. Um, but I just think we we need to be a little bit more careful than just like pointing to the Jewish, you know, if we're going to keep, um, if we believe that we should keep like the, the law of God and that that law includes the, the festivals and his holy days, which I do, I do believe that, um, we need to be careful in looking to the modern Jewish people and saying like, they're the ones that have it right. Like, no, they're, they're doing different stuff too. So I'm not going to hate on them for what they're doing. In some ways I'm a lot closer to them than I am. Um, modern Christianity. And in other ways, I'm more close to modern Christianity than I am Judaism. Um, but as far as in practice goes, like they're not, you know, they're not like the purists that we want to make them out to be. So it was interesting to see the tabernacles and the palm leaves sticking out of the trucks. Um, it right, reminded me of like, you know, modern people in Christmas when they've got Christmas trees sticking out of the backs of their cars. These guys are getting ready for a holiday, a, a holy day. So, um, you know, they're, they're excited for the Feast of Tabernacles and they've got palm fronds sticking out of their truck and tied onto the roofs. So that was just an interesting thing. And that wrapped up the day. Next time we're going to be talking about uh, Caesarea Philippi, which was a fantastic site. We also went farther up north into Israel, the farthest north we had gone up to this point into Dan. And that was, man, there's a lot to say about Dan. I'm really excited to get through that one. Um, so that was a great day as well. And I think this was, yeah, this was also the day we went to the Syrian border. So a lot to talk about for next time. Hope you've enjoyed listening up to this point. And I uh, thank you for your time. Hope you guys have a good one.